This week, we're going to continue this series on stewardship. But before we do that, last week, I promised a picture of what Jesus probably looked like. And so if you give your attention to the screen, you've see, if you've seen this image, this is, this is probably, this is definitely more what he looked like than that blue-eyed, long-haired, wavy-haired picture of Jesus that we're used to, right? Where he looks a little bit more like GQ than like year zero of Palestine. And so if you came to faith because you thought Jesus was a white man, I thought I'd burst your bubble now and give you the opportunity to get on board. <laughs> probably, that, shot, that probably should have stayed in my head. <laughs> but yeah, so, um, yeah, we'll just keep going. So this week we're going to continue our series on stewardship. Last week um, I, I read a number of song titles that are all having to do with the topic of music. None of the song titles that were submitted to me in my informal Facebook post were Christian in nature. Um, they were worship in nature, uh, mostly worshiping the dollar and worshiping the things that the dollar can buy, uh, but, but none of them were, were worship songs. And that's because uh, in Christian worship, we recognize that what we have in Christ is far more valuable than any possession that we could ever have. It's far more valuable than gold and silver, uh, in, in whatever other bitcoins, any other ways we have of assigning values to things in this life pale in comparison to the value of the gospel. We're going to stay in this series. If you're a guest, I, I want to let you know that we don't always talk about money, but when we do, we call it stewardship. <laughs> stewardship is a Greek word for money. No, that's not true. Uh, we, call it, we, we talk about stewardship. We actually talk about money a lot because we think about money a lot not as the church, but just as people. Uh, but when we talk about stewardship, what we're aiming at is the idea that the things that we have are not our own. They belong to God. And what we have in this life is an opportunity to steward or to take care of his resources while we're on the earth and to put it to use or put it to the use that he created it for. And so as much as I wish that the, God had created money so that I could have lots of things and have many nice things, what he's really done is he's given us resources and the ability to make wealth, like we talked about last, last week, he's given us that so that we can advance his kingdom and so that he can be glorified in and through it. The problem is, is if it takes the wrong place in our heart, we end up serving the money and worshiping the money. And then we, you know, treating God like a divine ATM. Instead of trying to give back to him, we're always trying to take. We're going to stay on this topic of, of stewardship, and we're going to be looking in Matthew chapter 23. By the time we get to Matthew chapter 23, Jesus has already raised someone from the dead. He's healed blind people, cast out demons, and he's heading to Jerusalem. His, everything's about to come to a climax. The crowds are following him. Everybody's excited about this man's teaching or frustrated by this man's teaching equally in both directions. And, and Jesus is, is moving along and he, and he sees this uh, opportunity to create a deep contrast between those who are worshiping in truth and those who are worshiping out of falsehood. By the time we get to Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is on the bad side of the Pharisees and the scribes. They despise him. He's messing with, with their 
position. He's messing with their, with their resources, with their plan, with their way of doing things. And he's, he's talking about the kingdom of heaven and saying that it's completely in con- that they are in complete contradiction to God's ultimate plan or purpose for them in that time. And he's about to go on another tear. And in Matthew chapter 23, uh, we see the seven woes. And we're going to look at one of them. It's Matthew 23, 23. Jesus says this, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things that you should have done without neglecting the others. This is God's word to us. Father, help us today to understand what it means to be good stewards, that we wouldn't be falsely obedient, but we would be fully obedient to your purpose and plan. In Jesus' name, amen. So just to paraphrase, the scribes and Pharisees are, are there and, and they've zoomed in on one part of the law and have made it greater than the other parts of the law. And Jesus doesn't mince words with them. He cries out to them, woe to you. Scribes and Pharisees, he calls them hypocrites, actors, performers. You're going through these motions and you're acting as if you're one way, but your heart is far from the actions that you're supposed to be following. And, and you're, you're, you're putting up this pretense to be impressive to yourselves, impressive to the people around you, and you're detestable to God in that process. He's rebuking them, and I think he's speaking to them in a language that, on, that, they would, that the only language that they would be able to hear him in. The cautious, loving, hey guys, that might not be the best way to do it, would have earned him a rebuke. And so he takes on this place, and he, he's rebuking them, and challenging them, and telling them they're way off course. You're sick, he's telling them. Unless you recognize the sickness of your heart and your hypocrisy, you're doomed. Judgment is coming. And if you continue in this way, if you continue in this secular mindset, in this self-promoting way, you're going to reap the fullness of judgment that's coming to those who you, who you despise. And he's crying out to them and he's challenging them. The thing about Jesus when he challenges the Pharisees is, you know, you and I, we might be tempted to challenge someone just so other people can see us challenging someone. You ever been in that environment? I did it once on campus. There was a guy uh, that he, he came out on campus and he had these signs and it was like, you guys are adulterers, fornicators. You're all going to hell. You're going to hell. You're going to hell. And that was his evangelism tool. <laughs> and so the, people were offended. And so in an effort to impress the people that were offended, I went toe to toe with the guy and started yelling back at him. Realizing only a little while later, I felt really proud of myself in the moment, by the way. I was the people's champ. But what I, what I realized I had done in hindsight is that I was the people's champ. I wasn't God's champ. Nobody was won or persuaded through that moment. What people saw was a church divided. A church fighting. Was the guy right? No, I don't think so. Is that approach effective? No, I don't think so. So the next time he came out, I took a different approach. 
Instead of being the people's champ, I decided to be God's champ. And this is how I did it. He got out and he's shouting and he's, you're all going to hell. And everybody's yelling at him. And, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm like, I, I was itching to go yell at him again because I wanted to be the people's champ. But instead, I went to the people who were offended. I was like, what do you think about what he's saying? Oh, he's wrong and this and that and the other. And, and then they would ask me, well, you know, what do you think? And I was like, well, I don't know that he's completely wrong. I think his delivery's wrong. But I think part of the reason we're so mad about it is because there's some truth to what he's saying. And that bugs us more than how much he's offending us. So we turned it into a good cop, bad cop kind of thing. He just didn't know. Right? But God's heart is reconciliation. He came to heal the sick. You can't heal the healthy. And so the sick were making themselves known by shouting back at the guy, and it was an opportunity. But I, I had to change my mind. But Jesus didn't do that with that motivation. He wasn't calling out the Pharisees so that everybody else could see that, oh, this guy, oh, this guy's, he, he didn't have anything to prove to anyone. And it's because he didn't have anything to prove that he was calling out the Pharisees and the scribes. He was cautioning them, warning them, giving them opportunity to respond and to repent. Now, I don't think that the Pharisees and the, and the scribes, the Sadducees, they didn't set out to be hip, hypocritical any more than you or I set out to be hypocritical. You know, it's like we all experience that moment where we're confronted with the fact that what we said is a lot harder to do than it was to say. Don't we? You know, when, when you say, oh, you know, this is the right way to parent, and then you're the one in the grocery store and your kid threw a cantaloupe on the floor. Right? I was on an airplane ride with one of my children. And I had been really judgmental of parents with little kids until that moment. I was flying uh, with my child to visit someone and, and uh, it was just the two of us. And it makes for a great song, just the two of us. Oh yeah, you're so cute. Like Will Smith and his son. And that wasn't, that wasn't my experience. My daughters, oh, I gave, I got three of them. Her ears got, you know, started to hurt and she didn't know how to reconcile it. So she starts crying and then everybody had mercy on this young dad who was stressed out and probably red in the face. I was sweating. I was so embarrassed. I couldn't figure out how to fix her, you know? And, and so people start handing us stuff, just stuff, <laughs> things, just teddy bears, magazines, coloring books, crayons. One person gave us like Skittles, like a box of Skittles to which flew all over the plane. Just flung them. Those Skittles flew for rows. I called Megan after we got off the flight and I said, Megan, we just moved to Kansas. Pack up the stuff or just leave it. I don't care. But this is where we live now because I'm not doing this ever again. I don't know why I'm talking about that. Oh, it's a, lot, it's a lot harder. It's a lot harder, right? So I got into the moment and it was impossible to do what I knew had to be done. I had said, this is what parents should do. And I got into the moment and I couldn't do what needed to be done. We've all been confronted with that moment where, where it's like, where it's impossible to do what needs to be done. I want to talk about very quickly and then we'll get into the rest of the message. I want to talk about the anatomy of, of hypocrisy. So if you could put up that first slide, the anatomy of hypocrisy. 
what you see is that the goodness scale goes up on the left side and time goes across on the right. This is adapted from a Bible study called the Gospel-Centered Life. As time goes on, as we walk with God, the awareness of the holiness of God should be increasing in our lives. We realize that God is really completely unlike you and me. And then you've got, at that same time, awareness of our unrighteousness. As I walk with Jesus, I don't feel better about <laughs> how good I am. I realize how really hopelessly lost I am. The rocks in my garden are smaller to some extent. Uh, I, the boulders are gone. I'm not, I'm not going to fight anybody at 7-Eleven. I'm not going to, right? I'm, like the boulders are... Language is cleaner. My, my behavior with my wife is cleaner. My, I've got a clean moral life, but I've still got rocks in my garden that need to be tended to on the regular basis. And it's a surprise. It's kind of, it's, it's humbling, isn't it? It's kind of embarrassing. You're like, I'm still lost. And so what you see is when we give our life to Jesus, what happens is, can you see the cross on the left-hand side in the corner there? When we get and God's kind of good, I should surrender and follow him. And so with a, an itty-bitty cross. Now what happens sometimes is that we keep the cross the same size. And we have an awareness of the holiness of God and a deeper awareness of our own unrighteousness. And both of those are continuing in different directions. Staying the same size because we only remember that we were a little bit bad and God was a little bit good. And so we've got to close the gap between where the cross can get to and where God is and where the cross can get to and how unrighteous we are. Up the next slide. So what we do here is we begin to pretend and perform. We realize that God is so holy and the cross is not big enough to bridge that gap. So, so I'm going to perform and I'm going to tithe the mint, the dill, the cumin. I'm going to be very specific about how good I can be and try so hard and, and strain at gnats to get everything right so that I can be pleasing to God. This isn't big enough. Oh, and then doesn't do anything, all the pretending on the top side, doing all the good stuff, planting trees and walking and recycling in the right bins, <laughs> can only do so much, but I've still got to deal with my unrighteousness. So what do I do with my unrighteousness? I pretend. And I, I act like I'm, I'm not unrighteous by not confessing my sins. By not admitting my weakness. Sometimes we pretend by comparing ourselves to other people. Well, at least I haven't murdered a bunch of people. Leave that open to you. Interpretation. <laughs> I said a bunch of people. I, I haven't murdered anyone in case you were concerned about that. Not with a gun, but with my heart. So we can pretend and perform when really what God desires to do for us, if you could go to the next slide, is that as we become aware of the holiness of God and aware of the cross should grow to bridge that gap all the way along. I started with an itty-bitty cross. The cross that I see now when I think of 
the mercy and the compassion of God is enormous. It bridges that gap and will continue to fill that gap. And that's why there's a continual coming back to Jesus. There's that big R repentance that we celebrate with baptism. I repent. I'm, I choose to follow Jesus. And then there's a daily, hourly, little R repentance that goes with us for our entire lifetime. Where, we go, oh gosh, God, I'm sorry I made your cross small. You are holy. You are just. The gift you gave was enormous, is enormous. And the cross continues to grow and grow. And then all of a sudden you realize the goodness of God's goodness is even greater. Because when you realize this is what he did and his holiness is going up, his goodness is going up, his love is going up. And then, and then you're, you're like, my God, you're a good God. You see it, but the back, back that slide, can you go backwards? That's the anatomy of hypocrisy. We know on the inside that we're not good enough to meet the standard that God's called us to. Each of us has to deal with the reality that we're not good enough. And we have a choice. We can pretend and perform or we can surrender and let the cross grow. Now that's just in our understanding. The cross doesn't actually the holiness of God doesn't actually change. The depravity of man doesn't change. It's just our understanding and our awareness of those things needs to grow and change. Does that make sense? So that's the anatomy of hypocrisy. I don't think, like I said, I don't think they set out to be hypocrites. I think they probably set out really out of commitment to God. They wanted to make him, they could make him. And so they, they worked so hard, time after time after time after time. I'm going to hold to this. What else am I going to do? I'm going to do it too. Somewhere along the line, God, and started thinking about themselves. And it became about God anymore. It didn't become about honoring Yahweh. It became about promoting themselves and holding themselves up as the standard. And it meant calling other people into standard that they were that they were and shaming people for not living up to never mind God's expectations but people weren't living up to their expectations there's this uh Yaroslav Pelikan once observed he said tradition is the living faith of the dead traditionalism is the dead faith of the living did you get that I suppose that it is traditionalism that gives tradition such By contrast, the motions and forms of wearing robes and titles and observing rites while bowing to the fleeting ideologies, social structures, consumerism, all destroying secularism. Was to tithe the dill and the cumin wrong? No, it was, it was commanded by God in Leviticus. What they did is they zoomed in on just that thing and carried through with traditionalism. They had the tradition, they had the right form, but their hearts strayed from, from what was originally intended in the tithe. The tithe was designed to honor God, not to be okay with oneself. 
They were obsessive, compulsive about obeying that point of the law. And we risk the same mistake in our own lives. Maybe it's not giving. Maybe you do. Maybe you give so faithfully and so regularly. And what you do is you look down on other people who don't give as much or don't have as much. Maybe it's the way that you dress when you come to church and you're like, well, I dress properly when I come to church. Unlike those other people, maybe David will get a clue at some point and tuck in his shirt. <laughs> maybe it's the communion must be taken on the first Sunday. Maybe it's an altar call must be given in a certain manner in a certain time frame with certain stringed sounds coming from the keyboard at a certain time. Maybe it's that you're supposed to have morning church and night church. <laughs> oh. What are these, these things that we do out of, out of rite and ritual that have lost their meaning because our hearts have strayed from God? Where have we become pharisaical? So in the midst of their commitment to God, they end up neglecting man. He says, you've forgotten the way to your provisions of the law and you've, you've strayed, you've focused so far in on this thing, you've lost sight of this. Let me say before I get to that, that tithe is a, it was, tithe was an opportunity for God to show off and for man to recognize the goodness of God. And the tithe in the, in the New Testament, this is, you know, there's a lot, is a tithe for the New Testament or not? Uh, you know what? What I see is that the call is for greater than a tithe. Play with it. No, we're free from the law and that's Old Testament. And, you know, that's, that's the law. No, we're not under that law. We're under the law of love. And love doesn't stop at 10%. Well, God, I love you 10%. Not 11. 11, I extra love you. God, I'm going to wait until I get my, my form at the end of the year. Figure out how well I loved him good. 9.9%. Oh, I didn't love him. Love isn't about It's about the heart and the motivation. You know what I love about kids is when they want to give a gift, they give it all away. Have you ever noticed that? You know, like my kids will go over to a friend's house and they'll come home with all of their friend's toys. You know, it's like, I don't know that they were allowed to get those to you. It, well, well, it was theirs. No, it was their parents. Their parents bought that. It belongs to their parents. We need to give those things back. Do the same thing. They're like, hey, I gave them your car. <laughs> Thanks. That was really sweet of you. I need it back. Right? Are you with me? But kids start from this place of being like, well, I'm, it costs me nothing. There's going to be more. And they don't let the fear get in the way of the love that they want to express. Generous. And so, nor should we. So is the tithe for today? Um, no. Uh, the call is for more. So in the midst of their commitment to God, or at least a commitment that started that way, they neglected their fellow man. And Jesus is rebuking them. He says, these things 
you should have done without neglecting the others. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. There should be balanced obedience, developed obedience where you're able to hold these things in tension where you're doing this and you're giving faithfully and generously and, and, and bountifully, but you're also caring for the needs of your fellow man. Demonstrating justice, you're also living morally and ethically sound lives. And not forgetting the people. I think in some ways, uh, the, the younger generations right now are struggling in the opposite direction. You know, we, we want a cause, and we want to take up a cause, and we want to do things, but just don't touch my money. Where some generations are like, take my money, just don't take my time. The, uh, the younger generation, something to change, give me a purpose, but, but the money, that's mine. Millionaire, philanthropist. And I'll start giving once I've got my millions. We're probably not going to make those millions. If you've got kids, you're definitely not getting <laughs> Just kidding. It's so is it higher in importance or is it weightier? Is it more significant? I think it's both at the same time. You see, what they were doing was the easier thing. It's easier just to give of your resources than to care for your relationships. It's a lot easier to give flowers than it is to apologize. Right? Just tell me what you want. I want you flowers instead. We like doing things the easy way. We prefer doing things the easy way. Who uses the stairs when there's an escalator? Pharisees, that do. <laughs> we like doing things the easy way, and the Pharisees were taking the easy way out. I guess that could go into the anatomy of hypocrisy as well. Is that we take the easier path. It's the harder thing to care for someone, especially someone who's not going to give anything back to you. It's one thing to sow into someone because they're going to take care of you someday. Or they're going to, they're going to add something. It's a whole other thing. To love on someone and to care for someone who may not ever have something to give to you. But that is the love that God is calling us to. So we see in, this, in the story of these Pharisees in the account with these Pharisees, that there was a faux obedience, a false obedience, a partial obedience, and that there's a full obedience. There's a place where we go all in and we say, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this because you're calling me to it, and I'm going to also do this because you're calling me to that also. Don't run off headlong into one direction, but, but allow the us and mature us. And the church is at its best when it is filled with men and women who are living lives that are devoted to the purposes of God. If we leave today feeling like there's an extra set of, of pressure, oh gosh, 
give all, all this money. And there's the church talking about money again. And now I have to do this and I have to give X. And, and they're saying we have to be socially responsible. So now I have to, you know, donate my kidney or like give to a food drive. And, you know, to make the, the moment even more awkward, in a moment we're going to refrain. You feel manipulated? Give anyway. Just kidding. <laughs> I hope what you're hearing today is an invitation to join God in his mission. That's what we should be hearing in this. Not, I mean, for some of us, it's a rebuke and an invitation. It's like, ow, that burns. I've been focusing on one thing. And, and for us, it's like, dang, here's an opportunity for a little art. God, I'm sorry. And, then, and focusing in on this one thing, I made the cross small. And, and I was calling other people to, to pretend and to perform with me. I was bringing other people into my performance and making them stage actors. Maybe, maybe even just like secondary roles in the back because I want to be a starring person in my play. But in the narrative of this life, Christ is the lead. To recognize his goodness in our giving and to demonstrate his goodness and our justice mercy that we show to the world. Amen.